0: Welcome to The Check-In. This is Jean-Marie Evely. I'm Managing Editor at City Limits, and this is our weekly newsroom podcast where we bring you a conversation with one of our reporting staff to talk about some of the biggest stories that they've worked on this week. I'm joined today by our Executive Editor, Jarrett Murphy, um, who's going to talk to us a little bit about some of the um, borough president races that are happening this election year. Hi, Jarrett. How are you? I'm Marie. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. Good. Yes, so you've written a couple stories this week looking at um, the races for borough president in two boroughs in particular. And we'll talk about that, um, those specific stories in a second. But maybe you could tell us, like, what does a borough president do? It's sort of a unique office. Um, and your stories have written about the powers that that office has now and sort of how that role has changed over the years as well. Um, so can you tell us more about that?
1: So yeah, the eternal question, what does a borough president do, I think as a first matter, it's important to remember that every borough in New York City, if it stood on its own would be a fairly big city, Uh, the Bronx, 1.4 million people would be top 10. Um, Brooklyn and Queens with more than two million each would be in the top five, or actually maybe even the second or third largest cities in the country. And even Staten Island with 600,000 some odd people, that's a, that's a really big city. That's like New Orleans, Boston level easily. So these are essentially huge metropolises um, that are part of the largest city and therefore don't have um, a chief executive. They don't have a mayor. What they have instead is a borough president, that's in part an artifact of the time when there were separate boroughs, especially when um, Brooklyn was a separate place and it was a mayor of Brooklyn. Uh, but the borough presidents have been around essentially since the consolidation of New York City in the late 1800s. And there was a time when they really had a lot of power when each of the five borough presidents, the city comptroller, the, at that point it was called the president of the city council, we would now call a public advocate, and the mayor all sat on something called the board of estimate. And this really was the power center of the city. The city council had very little real power back then, and they would vote on the budget. They would vote on land use issues. In the late 80s, there was a Supreme Court case that alleged, I think probably correctly, that that system violated the one person, one vote rule because it meant that Staten Island, with a population then somewhere around 400,000 or so, uh, was had as much voting power as Queens or Brooklyn with two million people or thereabouts. And so that system was thrown out, the city charter was revised, the city council got a lot more power, borough presidents were kind of given a much more limited role. And so on paper that role consists of having an advisory voice in the land use system, appointing community board members, um, monitoring city services, running something called the borough board um, so they can be in touch with commissioners who run like sanitation and other services on the borough level. Um, and also having a a modest operating budget between say five and seven million dollars a year and control of 5% of the city's capital budget. So that translates, I think, to about $17 million for the typical borough president. Um, In addition to that, the office is assumed to have some soft power, power as a bully pulpit, as someone who's kind of an ambassador for the borough. Um, Different borough presidents have succeeded to different degrees at doing that. Um, but that is, I think, one of the big lures of the office to be the spokesperson for this place, um, if not having much power to actually shape it yourself. And obviously, as we say about almost every office in the city, it is a potential stepping stone to the mayoralty. David Dinkins was a borough president, Ruth Messenger and Fernando Ferrer, who were VPs, were Democratic nominees for mayor. And in this year's mayoral race, we have one current B.P., that is Eric Adams from Brooklyn, and a former Manhattan borough president in Scott Stringer. So that is obviously part of the uh, potential juice the job has as well.
0: And so obviously all of the boroughs will be um, voting for a borough president in this upcoming election. And you wrote specifically about two of the races in the Bronx and in Staten Island. So let's start with the Bronx. Um, You talked about um, a number of the ways that this is kind of a unique situation for the Bronx. This is the first time they've had an open seat for a borough president in a while, or they kind of rarely have these open seat opportunities. Maybe you could tell us first about um, the departing borough president, Ruben Diaz Jr., and sort of what his legacy was. And you mentioned some of the other past borough presidents in the Bronx and what they were known for. What has that office looked like in the borough? Yeah.
1: So uh, right now, uh, Ruben Diaz Jr. is the longest serving borough president. He actually took power in a special election early in 2009. So he was elected before his counterparts from that from that phase. And so he's been there for 12 years and development has always been his focus and it's been his success. The Bronx looks, as a resident of the Bronx, I'll say it looks very different than it did 12 years ago. And I think he deserves some responsibility for that, whether it's credit or blame, depending on how you think about development. Lots and lots of residential development, uh, much of it affording, some affordable, some of it not, uh, but that is his chief uh, legacy. He did, of course, run for mayor and drop out uh, nearly a year ago. Uh, because he said he simply um, wasn't interested in, in pursuing the race anymore. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, because Diaz's ascension coming through special election, um, you know, he was basically an incumbent by the time he faced a real election, because special elections don't attract many voters, of, as we've discussed before. Before him was Adolfo Carrión, um, who you know oversaw like the Yankee Stadium redevelopment, which was controversial, Bronx Terminal Market as well, um, and before him was Fernando Ferrer. who was BP from the late 80s until 2001. Of course, ran for mayor three times, including his run in 2005. Ferrer was really in charge in the Bronx as it began to recover from the depths of the crisis that it faced in the 1970s and 80s. Um, There's always been debate about how much credit he deserves for that. Obviously, others, others do too, including Mirkoch and, most importantly, community organizations. But he certainly was part of that picture. Um, but as you mentioned, This is, I think, only the second time since 1969 that we're gonna have an open general election race for borough president where there's no incumbent. Um, Back in the early 70s, uh, Robert Abrams left uh, to be state attorney general. And so someone named Stanley Simon was appointed. Stanley Simon got in trouble with the feds and had to resign. And so Fernando Ferrer was appointed. And Ruben Diaz won, as I mentioned, by special elections. So it's a rare chance for the Bronx to kind of weigh in on who this spokesperson slash ambassador is supposed to be.
0: Exciting. And so maybe you could tell us quickly about some of the candidates who have thrown in their hat in the ring so far and sort of what their, um, their campaign platforms have looked like.
1: Yeah, so we have two sitting members of the city council, Fernanda Cabrera and uh, Vanessa Gibson. Uh, We have two members of the state legislature, Assemblywoman Nathalia Fernandez and Senator Luis Sebulveda. And we have two kind of newcomers, non-politicians, Sammy Ravelo, who is a retired New York City detective and police lieutenant, and Victor Gutierrez, who is a community activist and has run for other offices in the past. Those are the six. Um, Right now, it appears that Cabrera, who is a um, council member, has been for three terms now, is a pastor, um, has a reputation for being a religious conservative. In the past, his um, positions on gay rights and abortion have been an issue. He says now those are settled law. Um, He's been an advocate of cure of violence, um, talks about that, talks about changes to the school system. Vanessa Gibson is the Um, has only been in the council for two terms, but was in the assembly before that. Says that combination of state and local experience is going to be a big advocate uh, asset for her. Um, And uh, Nathalia Fernandez is relatively new on the scene. Uh, She was an assembly aide, won special election to join the assembly just in 2018. Um, Says that her election as a a young woman and a Latina would be itself history-making for the office. Um, And uh, has a, a policy agenda Uh, built around the typical things that uh, federal prisoners talk about, land use, job opportunities, that sort of thing. Those are really the big three now uh, for a couple reasons. One is they're sitting officials. Two is they have some money and have some matching funds requests in there. Um, Fernandez has less money, but is getting some establishment endorsements from people like Michael Blake, Uh, you know, elected officials who have a following. Um, Luis Sepulveda would be a strong candidate except he's facing charges for having assaulted his wife. Um, and so it's not clear whether his campaign is viable or not. The other two, uh, Sandy Ravallo and Victor Gutierrez, are new. They have ideas, they are running hard. Whether they can break through, especially in a strange year like this where you have um, you know very little in-person campaigning where money is going to be a very big part of the deal, I'm not sure they'll be able to compete. Uh, but right now they are trying to be on the ballot, and they probably will be there. And obviously, ranked choice voting introduces some interesting variables in terms of how they could be part of the mix that determines who the winner is.
0: Yeah, so a big race for the Bronx. And let's shift quickly to Staten Island, um, which your story that will be coming out today notes is sort of a unique political landscape compared to the other boroughs.
1: Yeah, so in most of the boroughs, all four of the boroughs that we've, uh, other than Staten Island, the Democratic primary is going to be tantamount to election. It always is. So Come the end of June, we'll know who almost certainly is going to be borough president. There might be a general election. That's a serious opportunity for someone else to win. But given the advantage uh, Democrats have in those boroughs, the primary is basically it. That's not the case on Staten Island, although we do have two, uh, possibly two very interesting primaries. There will be a Republican primary, it looks like, between city council member Stephen Matteo and business owner and author uh, Leticia Romero. Um, they are two Republicans who are vying for the post uh, Matteo was chief of staff to James Otto when Otto was in the council. Now Matteo is in Otto's seat and Otto is the borough president. So Matteo has establishment support. He has more money. Um, I think he probably would be considered the front runner now. Romero, I think, comes from a slightly more conservative, more Trump point of view, um, has a bit more of an aggressive, uh, visionary approach for the office, which may or may not be appropriate for it. Matteo is much of a kind of like behind the scenes let's fix one pothole at a time sort of guy. Um, and then on the Democratic side, you could have a primary there too. You have uh, business owner and activist, Laurie Honor is definitely running, um, a civil servant and union member, Radhakrishna Mohan, who ran in co- for Congress in 2018, also in the mix. They are both definitely running. And realtor Mark Murphy, who was the son of a former congressman from Staten Island, who ran for Congress in 2012, back when Michael Grimm, was the guy, um, is potentially running, but he hasn't decided yet. So it's likely we'll have two primaries. Then the question is, obviously, do Democrats have a shot? Um, Staten Island has a Democratic registration advantage. Many people don't realize that. It's just that those Democrats either don't come out or vote Republican. Um, But Democrats think that they have the ability to pull this off. Remember that Max Rose did win borough-wide back in 2018 because of some very excellent uh, Democratic organizing. And while Donald Trump pulled out a lot of people to vote uh, this past November, there'll be no Donald Trump on the ballot come November 2021. There may not even be a particularly strong Republican mayoral candidate that could work to the advantage too. Staten Island is a fascinating place. It's I love visiting there. It's really interesting. It's beautiful. And there's a lot of great people. It's also a really interesting borough because of the changes there. It's become much more diverse In recent years, a lot more foreign-born, a lot more people of color, but Republican registration has also increased quite a bit. So it's
0: an interesting and hard-to-predict dynamic in Richmond County. Um, Well, thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today about these races. Thanks, my pleasure. Once again, you're listening to The Check-In. This is City Limits' weekly newsroom podcast, and that was Jarrett Murphy, our executive editor, who's been covering the 2021 elections. Um, You can find Jarrett's stories and all of our other coverage at citylimits.org. And check back next week for another episode of The Check-In, where we'll be talking to our editorial staff about the pieces that they're working on and the biggest issues happening in New York City. Thank you so much, and have a great weekend.